Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Big bank exits and fintech upstarts. Ireland's banking landscape is undergoing drastic change. We'll discuss some of those changes shortly. Addiction crisis, a new report has found there's been a huge jump in the number of young adults requiring treatment for cocaine addiction. Recovering addict Connor Harris will join me in studio to share his recovery journey. And later, the government has announced a series of new initiatives to support remote working. Are you one of those workers? If you're at home, uh, you're working from the kitchen table. It's, it's not a particularly healthy place to be. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, Keir Starmer will meet political leaders here in Dublin tomorrow with the ongoing row over post-Brexit arrangements for Northern Ireland expected to dominate discussions. The UK Labour leader arrived in Dublin this evening for a dinner with the British-Irish Chamber and is expected to meet President Michael D. Higgins and Taoiseach Michael Martin tomorrow. It's his first visit to Ireland as the leader of the opposition in the UK Parliament. Look, it's fantastic to have arrived here in Dublin, uh, not been for a few years now because of the circumstances, so it's fantastic to come, to listen, to engage. Lots of very important issues for us to discuss. Thank you. Well, most Irish consumers believe the culture of banks has not improved since the financial crisis, according to a recent survey carried out for the Department of Finance. And now with KBC and Ulster Bank exiting the Irish stage, what exactly does the future of Ireland's banking system look like? Well, joining me here in studio to discuss this is Irish Independent Personal Finance Editor, Charlie Weston, Fine Gael Senator, Barry Ward, Sinn Féin TD, Rose Conway-Walsh, and Irish Times journalist Mark Paul. You are all uh, very welcome to the programme. Mark, I'm going to start with you because I suppose the landscape of Irish banking has changed, hasn't it, quite dramatically since the crash. We've seen big banks leave the market. We've seen uh, mergers. It is getting smaller. It is getting much smaller. I mean, last year, the, the big news last year was when um, Ulster Bank and KBC both announced they were departing the Irish market, but other banks have departed the market. I mean, um, back in, in pre-crash times, we had ACC, we had Irish Nationwide, we had Anglo-Irish Bank, and we had Danske Bank, we had Rabobank. Um, all of those banks are gone or are going. Um, and uh, one of the big reasons why large banks are leaving uh, the Irish market is simply because they don't make as much profit here as they do in other markets. Um, and one of the reasons that they cite for this is what's known as their kind of their capital buffers. Essentially, it's rainy day money that banks have to set aside in their balance sheets to offset against future loan losses. Um, and in Ireland, um, because of our past experience with financial crashes and with huge banking losses, um, they have to carry much more of 
hold much more of that rainy day money, those capital buffers here, than they do anywhere else, between two and three times more in Ireland than with comparable banks otherwise in Europe. And that reduces their profitability. Um, another reason why banks are leaving the Irish market um, and why it's not so profitable is because Irish people aren't um, 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 look, they're just not as flahulic when it comes to borrowing money as they used to be. Um, uh, lending to SMEs isn't quite as buoyant as it used to be. Um, Irish people have deleveraged over the last number of years. They save more cash and loans are really where banks make their money. So um, demand there is weak, is it? Yes. It, well, it's not that demand is weak. It's just that it's not quite as, as, as crazy as it used to be in the boom years. Um, another reason that's, that's perhaps spoken about less, but, but banks often cite it, um, is that it's, it's harder in Ireland to enforce mortgage loan security. It's hard to repossess a house um, if it goes into arrears in Ireland in comparison to other countries. Now, there are many reasons for that, um, and there are social and cultural reasons. You can argue that it's a good thing that it's harder to repossess a, a house in Ireland, or if you're a banker, you can argue that it's a bad thing, but it, it is a thing. Um, and and uh, because of that, there's a cost to that that gets, I, I guess, socialised in, in a sense. It gets added on to everybody else's mortgage. And, and regardless of where you stand on that issue, it, it is seen as a factor in why um, um, uh, the Irish market is less profitable for large banks. And is it a costly place to do business, a costly place to be a bank? It is a costly place to be a bank. I mean, it, it, it's, it's costly for staff in Ireland um, um, and it's, it, the general cost of doing business is high in Ireland. I mean, you know, it is a fact that, that, that banks... Uh, like, for example, KBC, KBC Ireland, the, the, the local operation of KBC, which is a Belgian bank, it was less profitable here than, than, than most of the other KBCs in Europe. So, I mean, I mean the banks aren't lying when they say, um, or at least the banks that are leaving, they're not lying when they say they don't make huge profits in comparison to other markets. You, you've seen the impact as well in, in the stock exchange in, the, in the, the share prices of the banks that are staying, AIB, Bank of Ireland and PTSB, they're all quoted in the Irish Stock Exchange. And since these other banks have started to depart, their share prices have started to rise. So I think what analysts and investors see now is maybe a chance for the Irish banks, the ones that are staying, the, the ones that are indigenous, and maybe a chance for a long-term future profit-making for them because they haven't made the profits that investors have wanted them to make for quite a while. What about the fintechs, the Revoluts, the N26s? Is this a great opportunity for them? Are they flocking into the Irish markets? They do. They, they've particularly come in on the payment space, digital payments, I mean, the instantaneous nature of it. I know the Irish banks... Um, 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 they've tried to come back with their own uh, version to compete with Revolut, but you know they are the young upstarts. They are they are they are the digital companies uh, who know this market, um, and they don't have legacy bank expensive branch networks, and they don't have huge numbers of staff here on on, on really high pay contracts to deal with. They don't and have so the capital requirements. They don't have the capital requirements. They don't face all of the same regulatory hurdles, um, and so um, they have an advantage over 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 the legacy banks and 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 the bigger foreign-owned banks like Ulster Bank, which is owned by NatWest and KBC, which is a Belgian bank, they looked at this and they said, look, we'll get out of here while we have a chance. And just to be clear, there's no evidence that there's any other European banks that are looking at Ireland now and feeling enticed to come and open their doors here. Like no. What we have is what we have. What we have is what we have. Um, 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 look, there may be some digital entrance and you get, you get non-bank lenders. But in terms of big banks, what we think of as traditional banks, there are none looking to enter the Irish market because um, the market is small. It's a small European market. It's not a bonanza market like it was in the Celtic Tiger years. Um, it's, 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 it's dominated now by AIB and Bank of Ireland with PTSB bringing up the rear. And it's just not an attractive market for big banks to come into. Uh, it's interesting there, Charlie, to listen to Mark list all of those banks. You nearly forget that used to be in the Irish market. So many of them gone now. Less competition is never a good thing for consumers, is it? It's never a good thing. I mean, your typical 
decent sized Irish town would have had five or six different branches of banks in there. There's possibly none left. You know, I mean, Bank of Ireland closed about 100 branches recently. You know, I mean, they used COVID as, as an excuse to temporarily close them and then just close them down. AIB has been closing branches. They are all concentrating the market very heavily now. They, 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 you know, AIB is buying trackers off Ulster Bank and commercial loans and KBC is, a lot of its business is going to Bank of Ireland. They're going to be much stronger, the banks that are here. Marcus, right, I just don't see any full service banks coming in here. Uh, you know, the, and the they've also been cutting is, bank, is, haven't they, on, on personnel in these banks and sort of trying to push us more online, pushing us more to become digital bankers. Which is, yeah, which is because, because there's such a huge cost base in, you know, in, in, in branches. And people have stopped going into branches. You know, we, we, eventually more branches will close. I'd say at the moment, you know, they're just, they're just busy trying to handle this switching that's going on. But in time, they probably will close more branches. You know, you won't be getting new players in. You may get a few non-bank lenders coming in with mortgages. You may get some more payment operators. Uh, you know, but the, the, the existing banks are going to be very strong. They probably will get a uh, clearance for this payment system, this instant payment system that they're trying to uh, introduce since, since uh, cinch, it's called. Yeah. Um, and Which has been held it, up for some time at this point, hasn't it? It's, it's been looked at by the regulatory authorities, yeah. But I mean, you know, they're just going to become stronger. None of this is good for the consumer. It's not going to be a healthy banking environment. We already have mortgage rates. We had new figures out again today showing that we have almost double, we pay almost double the mortgage rates on average across the Eurozone in this country. You know, that's a real cost for people buying a home here. I don't see that changing. Mortgage rates are probably going to go up now. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a terribly competitive country, as Mark says. You know, the regulatory rules are tough. Uh, banks don't make an awful lot of money. So, you know, the squeeze is going to be on customers. It, 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 once, yeah. once things settle down, when the Ulster Bank exit and KBC exit, once that's sorted out, I think the squeeze will come on consumers. And what's interesting when I was looking into this today is we hear about all these new, you know, fintechs. And I know everybody probably has a Revolut app on their phone, but... Most people still have their current accounts in one of the traditional banks, don't they? That's what people still yeah. like in this country. Like, you're not, you're not paying your salary into your online bank. Yeah, I think people are being selective. I mean, they're probably using a Revolut or an N26 for payments because mm -hmm. they are brilliant for instant payments. If you need to pay the piano teacher and you don't have cash, they'll probably take a Revolut payment. You can rev them, as my kids say, you know. And it's very, very convenient because who has um, cash to pay the, the piano lessons or whatever, you know. But... Um, yeah, for full service banking, 97% of people want, uh, you know, to go to a traditional ba a bank with, with branches and uh, where you get an overdraft and a credit card. Um, you know, that's probably going to become increasingly fragmented. We probably get our credit card and our loans and our mortgage from different providers. But for, for now, anyway, we're still, we still like that full service bank. This is so why you don't see those online fintechs as being sort of, you know, the immediate future for people? No, not immediately, no. You know, we're not that, there. That's, we, had, we had the three banks yesterday, the three main banks saying that they're they're seeing huge numbers of new account openings. You know, um, uh, uh, AIB saying more than double, 152% increase uh, per week in the number of accounts being opened. Something similar for Bank of Ireland and a huge increase for permanent TSB. Uh, even though some people are going to credit unions, they have about 100,000 current accounts. Um, and Post, its, it's, it's, um, its current account has about 110,000 people uh, signing up for it. But I think the big flow of business is still going to those three big banks, which is just going to make them stronger. When they're buying, they're snapping up the assets of Ulster Bank and KBC. They're just going to become stronger and stronger. It's going to take some good regulation to make sure that they don't come down too heavily on consumers. And we just don't see that, unfortunately, from the central bank. We don't see an emphasis on consumer protection from the central bank. So I think they really need to up their game. Yeah.
Um, Barry, are you concerned for you know Ireland Inc that we have two more big banks leaving the market? And as Mark says and Charlie says, nobody looking to come into play. Not good news for consumers. How do we stop those from becoming you know the absolute dominant force here and you know not offering a good deal to consumers? Yeah, well, as you've said, fewer banks is, is bad for competition and that's bad for the consumer. And I agree with what Charlie has said about the central bank's attitude to regulation. I think there needs to be a more consumer focused. Uh, you certainly don't get that from the bank. I know myself trying to actually speak to somebody at the bank, you might as well be calling Revolut because there's nobody at the end of the phone. And I think if they spent less time trying to divert customers from speaking to a real person, they might actually save a bit of money. But uh, I think we need to keep a very close eye on it. Um, We've had huge difficulties with our banking systems in recent years, and we're lucky that there is a functional system there, at least, that, that does lend to business and does lend to individuals. But I think the points that have been made about the competition in the market are fair. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to repossess a house. And that's as it should be in many respects, but it shouldn't be impossible. Um, and that's one of the things the banks point to. Um, but again, I think there's got to be a bit, a bit of quid pro quo from the banks. If they want people to reciprocate, they have got to play ball a little bit. They have to... I mean, I absolutely understand the drive towards digitalization, but I have people contacting me, particularly older people, who find that extraordinarily challenging. Yeah. Banks have to accommodate those people as well. Um, Rose, it's a bit of a catch-22 here, isn't it? Because uh, listening to uh, all of the speakers so far, they're talking about the regulation that's here for banks. They're talking about the credit that they have to have. They're talking about the real difficulty when you've got bad loans in your book doing anything about it. And yet, you know, politically, nobody really wants to do anything, particularly about the latter issue. You'd, you'd almost feel sorry for them listening to some of that and forget that we nationalised the debt from the banks and, and forget how reckless they were when they traded without the capital ratios. And there's a reason there, that there's a reason that the capital ratios are there and that they have to be there and that we need the regulations that are in place. We but the consequences are that we are losing banks here and we are losing competition. But they're also making, you know, they're also making very, very substantial profits. I mean, we, we have the highest mortgage rates in mm. Europe and have had for years. So, you know, though that money is going somewhere. Yet we've seen all the branches close down as they were. I think people will, again, uh, you know, as, as Barry was saying, in terms of people being able to speak to a human being in banks. I think people who have been extremely loyal to these banks are, are being completely disrespected. And that is small businesses and individuals. And the collateral damage for some of these practices from the banks are elderly Yeah, and I want to get well to that. I'm just wondering what Sinn Féin yeah. would do to try and keep banks in the market or attract banks back into the Irish market? Well, I think you need to look at things like the credit unions and you need to look at the other services that are there. Um, uh, within the credit unions, and I think more and more people are looking to them. So we, we need to do that. We need to uh, obviously have competition and, and encourage competition, but have a fairness and an openness and a transparency about it. I think you will have a lot of the, the tech situation. So people's behaviours are changing, but we also, as a government, we must make sure that people who are protected, people who aren't okay. tech savvy, are looked after as well. Banking is an essential service for people. All right, Mark, what should the government be doing, do you think? What could the government or indeed the central bank be doing to attract banks here? Well, the, government, banks here? Well, the government currently has a review underway of the, of, of the whole prudential landscape um, for banking. But really, when it comes to the, the, the capital buffers, that's in the preserve of central bankers. And Charlie has already alluded to the fact that he thinks the central bank needs to take a more proactive consumer approach. There is an argument to be made that the central bank needs to get out of the wartime mindset um, of the last crash. And that wartime mindset... I think informs some of the implementation of the rules here and, and is why Irish banks have to hold so much capital. Um, um, you think it's too strict? Well, well there is an argument. There, there is an argument that perhaps it's too strict and, and, and 
you know, there is a benefit to holding a lot of capital, but there's also a cost. And so you have to weigh up and, and try and find the right balance between those two. Um, a lot of international analysts look at the Irish Central Bank and have said it in presentations and have said, why do you still force Irish banks to hold so much capital? If you force them to hold less capital, they would have more money to lend. And if there was more uh, money being lent out into the market or more competition for lending um, or more cash there, they would make more profits and, and, and maybe maybe they could put out loans at a lower cost. Um, so I do think maybe this wartime mindset, this mentality that, look, disaster is around the corner. Disaster was around the corner in 2008, but this isn't 2008. Our balance sheets, homes and businesses, they're, they're deleveraged now. So maybe Central Bank could do it and um, um, reducing some of those capital buffers. OK, I just want to uh, move, Charlie, to a story you had in the Irish Independent about some difficulties um, that those who are looking to switch from KBC and Ulster Bank uh, are facing. And some difficulties, I suppose, between the central bank and uh, the banks themselves over how the switching code, which is meant to make it easy for people to move banks, operates. This seems like to me like a ridiculous row. You know, the the banks are saying when there, there's a thing called a switching code, which is you go into your bank that you're leaving, you tell them, I've set up a new bank account, I'm moving my bank account to such, such and such. Here's the IBAN, here's the number. Under that switching code, the, the old bank should move you, move all your direct debt, standing order, should do all the work for you, it should make it easy for you. Uh, but the banks are saying, oh, this is paper-based. You know, we have to put fill out forms, put forms into envelopes, post off these forms, and it can take two weeks maybe. And, uh, you know, Pierce Doherty asked a question after some, some presentations by the banks to the Oireachtas Finance Committee and said, he asked the central bank, Is it, does this really have to be done with paper? Can it not be done electronically, which would be faster and cheaper and more efficient? And the central bank came back and said, no, 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 it doesn't have to be done by sending letters. It can be done electronically. Why are we at this stage more than a year after these banks have announced their departure from this market, why can we not get it right? You know, why is the central bank saying one thing, the banks are saying another thing? Surely to God, you know, it's up to the why regulator are they to crack Why are they the only looking for clarity now a year on? Exactly. Somebody should sort it out. I mean, there have been calls, repeated calls by the Consumers Association and by the, the Financial Services Union for the central bank to set up an overarching committee or a forum to look at all of this, include the banks, include all the direct debit originators like your Electric Ireland's or Avivas or whatever else and get it all sorted out. Sh- to see how we can move sort of 500,000 customers exactly. as role, seamlessly role, role, as possible. Rose refers to vulnerable customers. You know, this would be ideal. This switching code would be ideal for moving vulnerable customers from KBC or Ulster Bank to the likes of AOB, uh, Bank of Ireland or Permanent TSB. It only applies to the banks, unfortunately. Excuse me. doesn't apply to the credit. This switching code doesn't work for credit unions and, and, uh, and post. But... It, you know, it, it should be there as, as a good option, but it's not working properly. And they're arguing over, over what way it should be done and should we send a letter or, or can we send an email. In this day and age, to be having that sort of an argument seems pretty much like a farce, really, doesn't it? Mm, it does. Um, we'll leave it there for now, but I feel we're going to come back to this uh, topic again and again uh, on the programme. My thanks to Charlie Weston and to Mark Paul. After the break, recovering addict Connor Harris will be here to share his cocaine addiction battle.
You're very welcome back. Now, a new study on substance abuse among young people in Ireland has identified an increasing prevalence in the use of cocaine in 15 to 24-year-olds. The report compiled by the Health Research Board found that cannabis remains the most commonly used drug in Ireland, but the use of other stimulants has increased, with ecstasy and cocaine use here the second highest in Europe. The report also found that adolescents start to drink alcohol at a later stage, but problem drinking remains a major issue in the country. Well, joining me to discuss this now is recovering addict Connor Harris, Finney Gillsbury Ward, Sinn Féin's uh, Rose Conway-Walsh and HR expert Caroline Reedy. And via Skype this evening, the head of addiction services at St John of God's Hospital, Professor Colin O'Gara. You're all very welcome to the programme uh, and thank you for coming in to us, uh, Connor, to share your story. You're 22 now, but you were 17 when you first tried cocaine. Why did you try it? Yeah, so just briefly, I just tried it out of pure curiosity. You know, I was out one night at a graduation and it was offered to me and I just said I'd give it a go. And when I did give it a go, I had this feeling that I'd never felt before. And I thought it was all good at the start. I thought it was what I wanted and stuff like that. But what it made me feel like that was a relationship, like a sense of love that I never felt before. And little did I know what it was actually going to do to me. Mm. So I took it, first took it at 17. That was at the end of fifth year. Sixth year I went through school, only using on a weekend. It was only a Friday night. Then I turned to a Friday, Saturday night. Then I was sneaking out of my house on a Wednesday to go to college parties in the local college to me. And the end of sixth year, I was using through my leaving cert. And I didn't really think I had a problem. I knew nothing about addiction or anything like that. I had no real understanding of what I was doing. I just thought I was having fun, you know. And you're a confident, outgoing person. Yeah, I was. And that's the thing people always said about me. They'd always ask how I was so, you know, confident and hyper when I came into school and all. But... You know, I use cocaine a lot to suppress emotions and things, the things that I dealt with in the past because I always struggled with my mind. And this was a great form of escape for me. It was a short-term solution for a long-term long -term problem that I'd been suffering with all along. And, you know, I went on a holiday, Croatia to Croatia for a holiday after school. And it was when I crossed this imaginary line, I believe, in, in my addiction. I used every day over there for 10 days. I went through over 3,000 euro. I'd get my family to send me over money for drugs, which they didn't know about. They thought I was struggling with money because of taxis and stuff like that. And I came back and I was meant to start my apprenticeship and drugs had another choice for me. I ended up I ended up losing that apprenticeship and I ended up getting into a lot of debt. I ended up going from using what was on weekends before, going to Croatia, using every day of the week to now just relying on drugs. So what would have been maybe one gram on the weekends was turning to five, six, seven grams a day. And that year in October before Halloween, I ended up in hospital after nearly losing my life and I ended up in €20,000 worth of debt. And how was it making you feel in yourself? So at the time when I first started, it was like everything. It made me feel good. It made me feel great. But the drugs stopped working very, very quickly. You know, it stopped making me feel better. It stopped turning down the voice in my head. But it got a hold of me. Like the cocaine really, really got a hold of me. And I was in the grips of this progressive illness that I did not know how to break away from. But... I always used the thing as I was so strong when I was growing up to get through things in my life, why couldn't I get over this? And I remember sitting at the, in the hospital bed, my mom and my sister were at the end of the hospital bed crying when I got rushed into hospital. And I remember saying, I'm never going to do this again. That's it, I'm done. And a week later, and it was Halloween, and I was back out using. And I said, where did I get? Or how did I get here? And why did this happen? And, you know, I went on another spree after that for a couple of months. And then it was, you know, Mother's Day 2019 when the lights really switched for me. 
You know, I, I'd been suicidal and stuff in the past when I was younger, even before I started using drugs, because I, I just, as a kid, suffered with my head and that was the way it was. And I didn't want to show that to other people. And, you know, it was Mother's Day 2019 and I'd been out for three days. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And I just had enough, you know. I, I'd been writing suicide letters and all before. I'd countless of times meant tried to take my life, and this time I really went to go through with it. And I walked back and forth to the water, taking off a piece of clothing. And in that moment, I tried to take my own life. I didn't fear death anymore. I feared living because what went to partying and having fun turned into me sitting in my bedroom seven days a week, you know, sniffing cocaine, going toilet in a bottle, pouring it out the window with no life to live anymore and I was playing inter-county football with Kildare and all when I was younger and I said how did I get here and you know by the grace of a love and higher power today I ended up getting saved by a friend who came back for me when he never should have and I remember when he grabbed me that day he said what would you do if I never came back with this bottle of water and I, I couldn't answer him I just cried and cried and cried and you know fortunately enough I knew that day I needed to change you know I knew that was enough for me and and when you were using, Connor, in, in particularly in the early days, were you able to keep that hidden from, you know, family, from school, teachers, your principal, employers? Yeah, so I could. And even my mum and me discussed this sometimes. She always, and it's no fault of her own, she always says, how did I not know? Because I kept it such a secret. I kept it so hidden. And it can be so scary how hidden we can keep it from our families with addiction, not just drug addiction, gambling and anything like that. I kept it so secret, only for what happened to me in the year before Halloween 2018. If that had never happened, my mother wouldn't have known because when I was lying down that day, I had to tell her. Were you surprised when you saw today's report that it's become so prevalent in this country, particularly among people who are so young? No, I'm not surprised because it's everywhere. It's everywhere I go. You know, I'm sober now, so I'm very aware of my surroundings and I know what's going on. And in my personal experience and what I've seen and all the signs and all the telltales of how people are doing it, I see it day in, day out. And when I seen this report, it was like, it doesn't shock me. It's just, it's what's going on today. And 
there obviously has to be something done about it because as a country for people between 17 and 24 to have that type of increase we have to be failing somewhere no no pointing the fingers at anyone to blame or something but it doesn't surprise me. I go out to nightclubs, I go to festivals, I see this day in and day out. Um, Professor O'Gara, many of us, I think, were shocked today when we saw you know, a 170% increase in the number of young people seeking help, seeking treatment for cocaine use. But I'm sure for you, working in the front line, it, it didn't shock you. No, it didn't at all, Kira. Um, it is a significant problem at the moment. Um, with regards to presentations and just listening to Connor's story, I mean, it's what comes through is the utter misery um, that goes with cocaine. And, uh, you know, it is a drug that um, uh, just brings so much grief to the individual and people around the individual. Um, the other point that, that I would make is just it, it goes hand in hand with alcohol. And in Ireland, we have a significant problem with alcohol. And what we see is that people use cocaine after drinking several, you know, say eight or nine pints. Um, people will use cocaine to continue drinking. And that's a really uh, dangerous uh, situation we have in Ireland because we already have a significant drink problem. Over the last, you know, certainly since 2016, in my mind, as the economy improved, we've seen this uh, increase in cocaine and just that toxic uh, combination in you know pubs nightclubs but as you progress with the illness it's really uh, you know a lot of the, the the viewers this evening wouldn't probably understand this it's a miserable addiction where people will use 24 7 at home alone or in a job so uh, once cocaine takes hold it's it's uh, you know as connor's referring to there you wouldn't you can be quite functional right till the end um, but using several grams a day. Connor mentioned six or seven grams a day, and that's the type of presentation that we would see at the severe end. People that, you you know, appear to be normal, but are taking huge amounts of cocaine. Any understanding, Professor, why uh, we are the second highest uh, amongst young people for using in Europe? I would see it as two, two, two facets to that, Kira. The first would be availability. Um, Certainly our patients tell us that the um, availability of cocaine is significant. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if a drug is a, a readily available, you see a significant amount of end harm. So if you want to reduce the end harm, you, you have to reduce the availability. Um, the second piece I would say is in relation to genetics. And there is definitely a genetic piece with regards to young people. If you look at us, uh, genetics and, and, and behaviour, you know, if you look at the way people drink on the continent versus in Ireland, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, as Irish people, we drink more and heavier and the binges are heavier and there's a cultural acceptance that, you know, drinking a lot is the norm. So, I, you know, I think that has translated to cocaine and unfortunately, you know, there's groups, uh, young people in groups now, tell us that they feel that they're the odd, odd ones out if they're not using cocaine in a group, which, which is kind of terrifying for, for, for parents and terrifying for um, loved ones because, um, you know, if, if there's that amount of, you know, that amount of, of pressure on young people to use drugs, we really do need to, to, to look at it and to see what we can do about that, you know. Caroline Reedy, 
Is it prevalent in the workplace? Do you think our employers having to deal with people who are either, you know, using at work or coming into work and still dealing with the after effects of perhaps having, you know, had a heavy weekend? Without doubt, I think um, the work environment, we have a lot of employee assistance programmes and people use work for a call for help. Um, Connor, I think, really put it well there where he said it comes to the end of the line that you're hoping you will get the opportunity to draw a line in the sand. And we see at work, often it's the work night out and people realise things, the wheels have come off really badly for somebody. And it's that opportunity to give them help. And I think that was a positive in the survey, the amount of people that are actually looking and getting help, which is the, the hope. Um, but I think raising awareness, the workplace has a really good role in raising awareness as well in relation to alcohol and drugs. But hasn't the workplace really changed because so many people are now working from home? I'm wondering, does it facilitate uh, this addiction a bit more? There's definitely a worry from that perspective that it's more hidden. Um, but I think we're still seeing the after effects the morning after the night before where people are not able to function and they're not able to come in. And again, we're back now to seeing a lot more of the work get togethers, etc. So I think this is definitely something that we need to address. We need to raise awareness both from a work perspective and general society perspective. Uh, Rose, I'm just conscious that there'll be people watching this evening and they'll, they'll say, well, look, I'm not at you know, Connor's stage or I'm not one of the people who's going to Professor O'Gara uh, and seeking help. I'm somebody who just uses recreationally at the weekend and it doesn't impact my life. Well, I think Connor's story there, I think there's a real value in people like Connor sharing that story and his journey of where he ended up and, and that was a process and I think people should listen to that. But it's also around the availability of it. I mean, it's available everywhere and in every rural community across this country. And we have to ask... And in every socioeconomic group it is, too, that yes. reports show today. Indeed. And in all ages, we have to remember it's not just young people, it's, it's people throughout the, the life cycle. Uh, and we have to look at why and why it's available if we look in terms of guard the resources. I know there have been extra resources put in in recent years, but I really think that the, the effects of the austerity on like the community projects, the youth projects, Connor was saying earlier on around, you know, education and, you know, education around drugs starting at a very early age. That was happening 2008, 2009, and they were just cut across the board. And I think we're reaping the consequences of that now. But in terms of community, policing as well and the connect between community between policing and the community has been lost and I would be very very yeah. concerned around what's happening with the new policing models now as well and the reduction in the numbers when we have 50 less um, drugs officers now than we had in 2000. Yeah and I'm just really conscious um, Barry Ward that maybe we're behind the curve on this issue. I mean, we have pretty strong public health messaging uh, around alcohol, but we really don't when it comes to drugs. No, I don't know if I'd agree, actually. I think if I focus on what Caroline said about the report, one, if there is a positive in it, it's the number of people who are coming forward seeking help and who are addressing the problem. And I think anybody who's thinking about this, I mean, I see these problems all the time as a criminal defence barrister, and the victims of this are not just the users, um, but their families. Uh, if there is ancillary crime, the victims of that crime as well. So it's important we deal with it. But anybody who's thinking about this needs to listen to the clarity of Connor's message. And I think he's told us a, a really sobering tale 
if I can excuse the pun, um, but also to remember that if you buy cocaine or cannabis or any other illicit drug, you are feeding into a drug underworld and a gangland crime scene. You're propping up criminality, but exactly people don't, it, yeah. don't think about that, do they? No, but they need to. They need to understand that. And the people you're talking about who say, well, I, I'm not, I'm only a recreational user. Recreation users buy drugs they feed the coffers of gangland crime. They contribute to all the other problems that come with that, and they need to understand that as well. Uh, I'm just wondering what, um, Professor, you would think is a solution here. What could the government uh, be doing to try and tackle this problem? Uh, for me, Kira, I think it's a, it's an issue of, uh, number one, education. Um, I think, you know, there needs to be dissuasion away from using drugs. Um, but I don't believe that uh, people will stop taking drugs. I think, you know, going forward, if you look at uh, the UK, it's probably one to one and a half million people using stimulants every weekend in the UK. So in, in my view, the horse is bolted in terms of uh, people using drugs. That will always be the case. Um, education, number one. Dissuasion, number two. Um, and then treatment services, number three. And, you know, if you look at community availability of community addiction teams across the country at the moment, it's very patchy. So I think significant funding, particularly outside of Dublin, and to prioritise cocaine as, as, as a primary problem. You know, you know I think you, you mentioned, Kerry, yourself that alcohol has got a lot of focus. But I think we need to focus on cocaine now, particularly in a young person's age group, and take a view that, look, people are using this in great numbers in Ireland and, uh, you know, particularly, uh, um, you know, kids in their 20s. And, you know, we have to find a means of dissuading kids in a in a mature way, knowing that uh, if it's not a sophisticated way, they're just going to discard it. So, you know, in other words, to just say no um, approach is not going to work. It needs to be more sophisticated than that. And to do that, and we need age, funding I wonder, uh, Professor, because I heard somebody speaking today in one of our news bulletins saying that they knew, you know, a 12-year-old in this country who was using cocaine. I mean, how early uh, does that education need to start? And are you seeing people of that age coming into you, into your clinics? Well, speaking to my colleagues in, in adolescent services, um, there's no doubt that every year the age gets younger and younger. And, and, and that is terrifying, uh, absolutely terrifying. Um, the education, I mean, it's a nuanced thing. You have to, you know, I, you know, I think each year that goes by, we're shocked at, you know, what kids are doing online and kids' access to substances. You know, I, th I think we need to look carefully at when we would start that. Um, but certainly um, in secondary school kids, uh, we need to need to start that um, education. And as I say, it needs to be sophisticated. 20 years ago, when I worked in London, there was a um, campaign called Talk to Frank, which was highly sophisticated and it was targeted, you know, the use of very, very nuanced messages. And that's what we need to do in Ireland is we need to put money in where, you know, you have... Uh, players from all different sectors feeding into this, experts in particular, online, television, radio, um, really targeting and getting that message across. I just want to... I Sorry to cut across you, Professor. I'm just conscious of time here and I want to give the last word to Connor because you have come through all of this, haven't you? You know, you're two years now, is it clean? Um, yeah, no, I'm tr actually three years now on the 17th of July this year. I went into... I actually went into Coomera Brewery treatment centre on the 17th of July 2019 and I haven't looked back since.
So yeah, look, life is amazing, and just any advice. So what anyone, is your what is your message then to to, to those people I who always, are thinking about using or who are using? Look, I always say like if you haven't started, don't start. And if you have started and you're wondering why you're doing it, you know, my lines are always open. There is people out there who will chat to you, but just know that there is a much much better life to be had. You know, I've got everything I've ever wanted when I put the drink and the drugs down. Now I drive now, I have a family that loves me, I can look my mother in the eye and tell her I love her. All this type of stuff that might seem meaningless, but it's actually really meaningful. It's the simple things in life you start to realise when you actually move away from suppressing the emotions and actually living in your emotions and your feelings, you can have a beautiful life. So if you haven't started, don't start. And if you have and you found yourself in a position, just put your hand up and reach out because there's people there out there who really, really do care about you. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming into us and sharing your story. I think it's getting a lot of praise uh, on social media this evening. Uh, thanks to Caroline as well. It just lets you know you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. My thanks to Connor Harris, Professor O'Gara and Caroline Reedy, uh, who's actually staying with us uh, after the break. The rest of the panel will be staying with me to discuss government plans for free hot desks for remote workers. You're very welcome back. Well, the government has announced a series of new initiatives to support remote working, including a voucher scheme that will give workers free access to local digital hubs. Under the plan, at least 10,000 hot desk facilities will be provided free of charge to existing hub users for three days and those availing of the facilities for the first time. Still here to discuss this is Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward, Sinn Féin TD, Rose Conway Walsh and HR expert Caroline Reedy. But first we can take a listen to what the Minister for Rural and Community Development, Heather Humphreys, had to say earlier. If you're at home, uh, you're working from the kitchen table, it's, it's not a particularly healthy place to be. It may suit uh, on occasions, but generally it's better if you come into a, a properly kitted out uh, working uh, facility. Uh, Caroline, just to be clear, <laughs> just to be clear, it's three days between now and the end of August, isn't it? That's, that's the pilot scheme. It is, and I suppose it's designed to tr forget to get, encourage people to trial it. Uh, you have some people who are going to be going on holidays, for example, in the middle of the summer. They can potentially uh, use the hubs. Uh, and I think it's a good way of getting people to trial these hubs. For a lot of people, they don't realise how many there is. 242, I think, at the moment, and that's going up to 400. And they're really well kitted out and they absolutely, I think, are a big addition for both employees and employers, especially with more and more people wanting to work remotely. And this gives people a bit of security in relation to that social element, a good broadband, a good office setup. And, you know, here lots more, I think, positive things to say about it. Uh, but Barry, it it did uh, occur to me today, I think there's 242 hubs, as, as Caroline was saying, 400. Um, but Heather Humphreys, when she was speaking, I think, uh, on the news earlier today, said there's only 1,800 registered users. 242 hubs, 1,800 registered users, as it stands. It's hardly a ringing endorsement for these hubs, is it? No, well, first of all, not everybody who used them is necessarily a registered user. We had a Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting recently where all of our TDs, MEPs and senators logged in from their local hub around the country. It worked incredibly well. I don't know how many of us were registered users. So there are people using them who aren't registered users. But uh, do we have any sense of how many people are using them and how often they're using these hubs? I, I don't know exactly, but I can tell you the ones in my area in Blackrock and Dunleary are over 
oversubscribed. And that's within an area where there is strong broadband signal. Other parts of the country, I presume, would, would have a similar mm. demographic in relation to them. But this is all part of a suite of measures that are designed to create as much flexibility as possible for people. People who don't want to work, as Heather was saying, from the kitchen table, where they might be cooking or kids or whatever it is, who need to go somewhere where they have guaranteed broadband signal, guaranteed access to secure broadband signal, guaranteed quiet, a space to work. That's what it's about. It do, it's not going to work for everyone. But those who want that flexibility to be able to work from somewhere close to home, it also avoids the necessity for them to drive a longer distance maybe to, to work wherever that might be. So it's about putting in place flexibility for people who but want to... But there is a charge for these hubs, isn't there? Is, yeah. A 10 or 20 euro charge for these hubs? Yeah, it depends on which one it is and how often you use it and whether you're a registered user. There are schemes and this is about giving people an opportunity to trial it at no cost or a very, very reduced cost. Would it not um, be a good idea to be able to make some of those charges tax deductible for people, for well, PAYE, not for PAYE workers? No, but in the, in the case of employees, I would have thought most of their employers would, would foot the bill for them. I know people who work for multinationals who are working outside, for example, Ennis, um, their, their employers are paying for it. Any employer who values holding on to their staff um, would facilitate them, I would have thought. So it is tax deductible for self-employed people. It is a legitimate business expense and it's something that employers should be and I think in most cases are paying for. Uh, Rose, I heard Barry uh, mention, look, it'll be good because people don't have to get into their car and they don't have to travel. Mm -hmm. And look, we are all so, you know, fuel, I think, conscious at the moment. Do you think this is part of sort of a, a, a backup plan with the cynic and you saying there's a bit of a backup plan for governments? You know, we heard about this potential for a winter fuel crisis. More and more people need to perhaps work from home or work close for home and, you know, not being into their cars often. I think they need to do a hell of a lot more than that. But I do think, uh, you know, it's good to have the digital hubs in communities. It is concerning that they're not used um, as much as they, they should be used, I think. And they certainly uh, provide a facility there. But I think... Why do you think they're not used as much as they should? Be. Because I do think people want broadband at home and people want telecommunications at home. And, and you know, I live in... So people in, don't want these hubs? Well, they do want them, but people, but the government need to listen to what people want. So when they look and see when their broadband is due to be connected to their home office or to their home and they see 2026, I think that's what causes real concern. We have the Leaving Cert today, the first, uh, the first day of the Leaving Cert. Many, many of those students across the country were really disadvantaged because they couldn't connect. They didn't have the proper broadband to connect so that creates a disparity there so I think certainly they are certainly they are welcome they they need to be used I think they will be used as people get more used to it they serve a really valuable purpose but we need broadband we need so connectivity and we need they're actually masking a problem here no I don't feel that at all in fact what I was going to say was Rose is talking about a very small number of people who are disadvantaged we are constantly working on that number through the national broadband plan something for which Fine Gael has been they're, they're the exceptions Rose most people have seen a huge improvement in the broadband facility, particularly in rural areas. And Finnegal has been criticised for the National Broadband Plan, which is solving exactly the problems that Rose is talking about. But this is not, this is not one size fits all. There's a series of solutions coming together to increase flexibility for people, to allow people to do what they want to do and what suits them, be it broadband at home or work in a hub. Those two facilities available to them. And is, is there a consideration from government that, look, coming into the winter, it's going to suit government and perhaps suit people to work from home more often, given the cost of fuel and people are not going to want to be commuting. I don't think that's at the heart of this because the the connectivity, the, the connected hubs... That's the cynic in me, is it? Well, it certainly is, but that's what we expect. That's a, your job <laughs> as a journalist. But the point about the connected hubs policy, that has been 
advancing for a number of months. Heather Humphreys has been key in terms of implementing that. So it's not about that. That may be an ancillary benefit that will come. And if, pe if people have the opportunity not to drive long distances, so much the better. Uh, Caroline, I'm just wondering if employers still support the idea of people working from home, if they support the idea of these hubs. I think absolutely. I think employers realise that if we want to retain and attract staff, flexibility is number one now for people up there with once they're getting a competitive benefits package and flexibility has many forms. That's the ability to, you know, do hybrid. It's the ability to work flexible hours. It's the ability to not have to do the commute. And I think this is a really big win-win because we know the right to request remote working. Yeah. Legislation is coming in the code of practice later this year. We're waiting for it. And I think already employers have proactively put policies in place to allow people request the right to work remotely. And it's also, I suppose, very important to keep our rural towns and villages alive, you know, bringing people Absolutely. into these rural towns and villages to work, to eat, to shop on their lunch break. That's what, that's what keeps really rural positive. Ireland thriving. Absolutely. I, the pharmacy, the coffee shop, etc. they're all getting the win. And I think the employees as well. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it uh, there. That's it from us. My thanks to my panel for joining me tonight. Claire will be here tomorrow night. But from all of the late team here, good night. And do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.